Welcome to the Freedom City Church podcast, a podcast designed to help your faith thrive. We hope you enjoy today's message.
especially the general customs and beliefs of a particular group of people at a particular time. Another definition of culture that I read was the ideas, customs and social behaviour of a particular people or society. So culture is everywhere um, and we experience it on lots of different levels. Um, you know, we experience culture as a nation, which, you know, if you're involved in that sphere, is a conversation that's changing. You know, we just had, you know, the public holiday that is sparking a lot of debate about what is Australian culture and how do we participate that in that as a nation. Um, we experience culture in our workplaces. Uh, some of us workplaces that have awesome culture. Um, some of us, myself included, have workplaces that have had awful culture. Um, and it really has an impact on you, right? The culture that you know, you're in. And when I was thinking about workplace culture, it made me laugh. Sam um, told me a story once about um, a job interview that he had where um, they asked him the dreaded, what's your biggest weakness question? I cleaned up the language a little bit for you. Um, but he said, um, well, you know, I'm a, I'm a product of my environment. So if you've got bad workplace culture, you'll have a bad employee, which I think is so true. <laughs> Um, you know, we set current uh, culture in our marriages and in our families. Uh, we experience culture in the extracurriculars that we do, like if we're playing a sport or we have specific hobbies and clubs and associations. So it's only natural that as Christians, there would be a culture that comes with that, right? When we think about bringing heaven to earth, we recognise that kingdom culture is distinct from the culture that we find ourselves surrounded by in other spheres. Christians, in particular, are marked by their non-conformity to worldly culture. Now, usually I would prefer to um, pick a big chunk of text from, from the Bible and, and sort of expound upon that. Um, however, as I power through the whole thing this month, um, what I've realised is that kingdom culture is actually really frequently addressed throughout the Bible. Um, so we might jump around a little bit today and hopefully we can uh, keep up with that. Uh, so yeah, it's really, it's really interesting again, as I said, when you're reading the whole Bible and you're seeing um, a lot of big themes and that kind of thing, um, I just thought to myself, it's quite funny how when we um, listen to lots of different preachers, um, preaching on all different verses in the Bible and often even preaching on the same verses in the Bible, like all of the different um, analogies that we come up with to communicate what we're reading and to help us apply it and understand it. Um, and the reason that I found that to be really funny is that the Bible's already like teeming with analogies because God knows that we need similes and metaphors to help with our understanding. You know, like Jesus, all like a lot of the red text you see in the Bible is him speaking in parables so that what he's trying to communicate would be interpreted in a, like a particular way and on a level that the people who are listening would understand. So I thought that was really like funny that we go out of our way to find new analogies, but the Bible's like, here, I've got a whole bunch for you, just use those. Um, all of that being said, what I took real particular note of during my read this time was that um, this imagery of yeast in the Bible and in the Old Testament, references to yeast are usually pretty literal. God spends a lot of time giving instruction to the Israelites about how to worship him correctly. That's really what 
the Old Testament is, um, especially the first five books, is like, here's, here's my law and here's how I need you to worship. Here's what you sacrifice, how you sacrifice, when you sacrifice, here's your celebrations, etc., etc. And so when it comes to bread, um, a lot of the time it's unleavened, um, that is, no yeast. And I think, from what I can tell, the first time that we see this instruction from God is in um, Exodus chapter 12. Um, so he's giving the Israelites instructions about how to celebrate Passover. So Israelites are in Egypt, they're like, let's get us out of here, and God's going to come and do his sweep and then take them out. And it says um, in chapter 12, it says, This is the day you are to commemorate. For generations to come, you shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. For seven days you are to eat bread made without yeast, on the first day, remove the yeast from your houses, for whoever eats anything with yeast in it for, from the first day through the seventh must be cut off from Israel. And I think uh, when I was sort of reading some countries about like, what, what's God's obsession with yeast, is like in this sense it, kind of, it makes a little bit of sense for him to be like, hey, don't use yeast, because the Israelites have a little bit of a time crunch to get out of Egypt. They don't really have time, right, for their dough to be rising. They're going to whip up their dough and chuck it on their back and off they go, we're out of here. So for Jewish people, this idea of yeast is not, like, foreign. Um, and then Jesus comes along and he starts teaching. Um, and so the notion of Passover is really well known. They're celebrating it every year in a really particular way. Eating unleavened bread during that festival is not confusing for them. So Jesus comes in and he's going to start using imagery that these people are really well acquainted with. They know what yeast is, they know what its purpose is, they know why they don't use it, etc. So then Jesus coming and he's teaching and we, um, we're going to read from Matthew 16 uh, verses 5 to 6 and 11 to 12. Um, so Jesus has just done... Um, been done feeding 4,000, and that's different to his feeding of the 5,000, so he's doing that amount multiplication. But in any case, Jesus is out about, he's multiplying loads of fish all over the place. Um, and so then he and his disciples have jumped in the boat and then head across the lake. And from verse 5 it says, When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Verse 6, Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So remember verse 7 through 11, the disciples are sitting down there into the boat having a thief and a chat about, why is he talking about us because we didn't bring bread? Don't know. And then verse 11, Jesus pops back up and he says, How is it that you don't understand that I'm not talking about bread? But be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 12, the disciples, then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the use of yeast in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So we're getting this sense from Jesus that we need to be really well aware of the culture that other people set and how we participate in that. So for first century Jews, that was being wary of the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You've got Pharisees who are like the Jewish leaders who are like, this is the law and we do it 100% exactly like this. If you don't do it like that, you're in trouble. And you've got Sadducees who are the Greek coming in and they're also having a crack at the law but like got a bit more of a political agenda behind it. So it's, it's really important to keep in mind that the way that they're teaching 
has got a bit of motive behind it and the culture that they're setting through that maybe is not what God had intended. For us in the 21st century, we're contending with a whole lot more than that, right? And at first, I was a little bit confused because on the one hand, we have Jesus telling us, like, be careful about yeast um, and where it's coming from and how you let it impact your life. But on the other hand, we have this other short passage from Luke in chapter 13, um, from verse 20, it says, and again, he, being Jesus, asked, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It is like yeast that a woman took and mixed it into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked through the whole dough. So first we've got to be careful of the yeast, but also the kingdom of God is yeast. So what am I understanding from that? I said yeast is powerful. It only takes a little bit to do what it needs to do. And it has an impact on a much larger scale than can meet the eye. So there's a dichotomy that we're living in, a balance that we have to, to hold where I need to be aware of and cautious of the yeast that I allow in my life, but I also need to be yeast. Yeah. A really common analogy that we go to outside of the Bible that you know, is a real modern one is be a, you know, be a thermostat, not a thermometer. We need to set the, you know, set the culture, not participate in the culture. So as Christians, if we're going to get a little bit yeasty, um, we need to, you know, if we're going to be kingdom focused, we need to put away worldly culture and start taking up kingdom culture. And if, you know, my message is going to be summed up in one sentence, it's this, it's that kingdom culture is counter-cultural. Well, I've been thinking about this idea of culture and how kingdom culture subverts worldly culture. There are four streams of culture that I can identify that we encounter um, in society that we need to actively um, combat or that need to be replaced in order to see heaven on earth. Okay, so we're going to go through those this morning and hopefully they're all G and we'll have our time at the end. Um, so the first one is that self-love culture is replaced by service culture. Self-love culture tells us that I'm number one, I need to take care of me first, how your behaviour impacts me is most important, and anything that impacts me in a way that I don't like or makes me feel uncomfortable um, is toxic and it has to get out of my life. I'm the first priority and how putting myself first um, impacts other people is not really my problem because, you know, I just, I love myself. It's a really individualistic mindset, right? One that proves to actually separate us more than it brings us together. But kingdom culture tells us that as Christians, we're to love others first. Yeah. In fact, it's Jesus' second commandment after love the Lord your God. It says, love your neighbour as yourself. So don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we should neglect our well-being in order to serve others. You know, it says love your neighbour as yourself. So you need to know and love yourself in order to love others well. Absolutely. But then in Philippians 2, um, verses 3 to 4, it says, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. Kingdom culture 
takes pride in valuing others, looking out for others, lifting up others, even in the face of our own selfish priorities. In a world that seems to say, each man for himself, however, we start to work the years through the dough that says, each man for another. The second is liberation culture is replaced by discipline culture. Liberation culture um, tells us that doing whatever makes me feel good is number one. I'm free to do whatever I like, whenever I like, however I like, and as long as it doesn't hurt anyone else and I get pleasure from it, that's okay. Sex is a really big culprit for this in this category, and it's actually, I think, probably would agree that it's really um, prominent in discourse in society at the moment is that if I'm free to express myself sexually however I like and have sex with whoever I like, then that's how I know that I'm truly free. And I think that's why, you know, the reason that it comes to butt heads with the church so often is that it's really um, in conflict with what the church says about pleasure and not that God doesn't want us to have nice things and feel good, but it's not number one. You know, this idea of doing what makes us feel good isn't new either. So Paul um, was addressing this very issue when he was writing to the church in Corinth. So it's pretty well documented that the, the Corinthians were pretty like like people. They're like, hey, let's have a go. Um, and if you read Corinthians, uh, 1 Corinthians 5 and 6, you even see um, the analogy of yeast used there. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, it says, get rid of the old yeast so that you can be a new unleavened batch as you really are. Kingdom culture tells us that as Christians, there's actually freedom in our discipline. It's a fruit of the spirit to have self-control. It's countercultural for us to stand up as believers and say, actually, it's not honouring to God for me to participate in X, Y, or Z. You know, even though it could be a fun thing to do. You know, that could be a whole range of things. Sex, alcohol, money, bad language. Um, and I don't point out anything specific to um, shame anybody, but to call attention to the impact that those things have um, on us especially when it's because society tells us that culturally that's okay, um, and actually being aware of the impact that it has on our spirit. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, um, says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. Yeah, that's good. Liberation culture is actually a really slippery slope to idolatry. And we spoke about that last week. It opens a door that once opened, it can actually really quickly allow us to kick God off the throne. Kingdom culture takes pride in valuing self-discipline, in establishing boundaries with the world so that we might honour God with our bodies and submitting to him first before giving way to what our flesh wants. The third thing is that cancel culture is replaced by grace culture. And cancel culture honestly makes my skin crawl. I hate it. And probably I see it a whole lot more than maybe other people because of how much time I spend on the internet. But it doesn't mean that it's not present 
offline, um, in current you know, rhetoric and, and in culture. Cancel culture tells us that perceived moral purity is number one, and that if you've ever done anything wrong, no matter how long ago or how egregious, you're not worthy of your job, you're not worthy of support, you're not worthy of the relationships you have, and you're not worthy of forgiveness. Cancel culture seeks to uncover all manner of sins from any period of time to expose all immorality and measure it by a yardstick of our own creation. Cancel culture tells us that growth in a person is not possible. Um, and that any semblance of growth in a person is actually a manipulation by that person to pull the wool over your eyes that they might continue doing the bad things that they are so um, have been told that they've done. But kingdom culture tells us that as Christians, we're called to extend grace and forgiveness. Yeah. Again, I feel like I need to put a little disclaimer here that I do not mean in any uncertain terms that if you are a person who has been subject to abuse or generally unhealthy relationships, um, that you're required as a Christian to remain in that relationship or um, to ignore persistent bad behaviour. Don't get me wrong at all. What I mean by this is that the Bible tells us ultimately it's up to God to judge others. It's not our responsibility to go out and seek to find wrongdoing in others. How depressing to spend your life looking for the, the bad stuff that other people do. Yeah. By its very nature, grace looks at us and acknowledges that we fall short. And we have a gift in Jesus to be forgiven of our sins. Um, it encourages us to take up a life that mirrors his and in turn extend that grace and mercy to others. Jesus talks about it, um, about judgment of others in Matthew 7. So up here I've got verses 1 through 3. It says, do not, be do not judge, sorry, or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So imagine to be the person who's going around looking for what people are doing wrong so that you can judge. I don't want God to go hard and looking for the things that I've done wrong. Yeah. He's covered it. Yeah. Romans 3 verse 12 says, All have turned away. They've come together and become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. And that's what makes the gift of grace so wonderful, is that we've accepted it knowing full well we don't deserve it. And I think sometimes the longer we go on doing this Christian thing, the easier it is to forget actually how precious that gift was. Kingdom culture takes pride in remembering that we too need grace. Yeah. And that when we say no to participating in cancel culture, we actually participate in bringing heaven to earth yeah. by taking the grace that we have and allowing it to permeate the hearts of those around us so that they might come to know the truth in Jesus Christ. Yeah. And we'll leave the spirit to do the rest of the work, okay? The fourth and final um, one that I've popped here is that evidence culture is replaced by faith culture. Evidence-only culture tells us that unless there's science to back it up, 
It's not true and it's not trustworthy. That explanation is king and that mystery is only temporary. At some point we'll figure it out. And again, <laughs> another disclaimer, I love science. Science is great. Don't misunderstand that I think science is bogus. Like, science is amazing. Where I think that this culture of evidence only or science only culture is dangerous is that it aims to discredit the supernatural entirely. Kingdom culture tells us as Christians that we are to walk by faith. And that's a really tricky concept. People who don't know God or haven't experienced the power of God to understand and to grasp. This idea that you would be okay with the majesty and the mystery of God is counterintuitive. I think that there's a really beautiful um, symbiosis that can come from faith and science. I think that science allows us to see the beauty of God in creation on a really like microscopic, macroscopic, nanoscopic level, right? But what a culture of faith offers us that science cannot is that it's okay for humanity not to be in control. You know, the language that you hear coming out of science when they're doing research is often control and test. So when we're looking to make new discoveries, um, we identify what can be controlled or explained by science and then we test a hypothesis. A culture of faith allows us as Christians to trust God that even in the things that we can't explain, that he is in control. Isaiah 55, 9-11 says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways, I'm sorry, your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Verse 10. As the rain and the snow come down from heaven, and do not want it to, uh, sorry, do not return to it without watering the earth and making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, verse 11, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. Kingdom culture values trusting God and allowing him to execute his good and perfect will in our lives. And kingdom culture gives us the opportunity to partner with God in faith to see heaven on earth. So you can see, like, kingdom culture makes the world a little bit uncomfortable because kingdom culture calls us to take up our cross and to lay down our desires to serve God. It makes people a bit tense or cringe when they see someone who doesn't conform to what society says is culturally appropriate. But the thing is, we see heaven on earth when we become a people who, through our example, say, actually, I love other people more than I love myself. Or as a people who say, oh, actually, I believe that grace and forgiveness is for everybody. And that restoration is possible for everybody. You know, people who say, uh, you know, I don't take lightly the implications that indulging my every whim has. People who say, I'm not in control, that's okay. And that's actually when we start to see the yeast affect the dough. 
And that's when we see your kingdom come, your will be done. Let's pray. Our Father who is in heaven, your name is holy and righteous. We pray, God, that you would partner with us to see your kingdom come and your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. We thank you for your instruction and for your correction as we seek to rid ourselves of the yeast that is not honouring to you. We pray that you would lead us and give us faith that you know what you're doing and that our part to play is a privilege. God, I pray that as we set out to live our lives as an example of kingdom culture, that you would author opportunities for us to expound upon that with those in our lives who see the difference and who are curious to know more. Father, give us the words to speak as we share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the kingdom to which he's leading us. For we know that yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever and ever. Thanks for tuning in to the Freedom City Podcast. If there is any way that we can help you survive and thrive in your everyday life, we'd love to connect with you. If you'd want to know more about who we are, just head to www.freedomcityfremantle.com. Until next time, take care.